they're going to sing, Oh, Come All You Faithful, and then we're going to go ahead and join in with them, and then they'll go ahead and make their way out as we continue with the next verse, okay? So, kids, you get us started with that, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful part, okay? And uh, then we'll join in. Is that is that the song, right? I thought I remembered. I didn't see now. Let's all sing together. Let's all stand up. Let's get ready to go. course today. Is that course ready to go? Let's go ahead and put it up there. Let's sing it out. My sins are gone. You ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why, because my sins are gone. If you don't know it, that's all right. Just listen the first time through. You ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why, because my sins are gone. And when I meet the scoffers who ask me where they are, I say, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary. As far removed as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Aren't you glad your sins are gone? Listen, if they're not gone, you need to deal with that because ultimately you pay for them or you can let Christ pay for them. I'm glad today that my sins are gone. Boy, the kids did a great job singing. Let's just equal that today and lift our voice up as we do this one more time. You ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why. Because my sins are gone. And when I meet the scoffers who ask me where they are, I say my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary. As far removed as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Thank you. Maybe see a great job today.
Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to the same passage we turned to this morning in Sunday School, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. I have my Bible this time. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. <clears throat> we're going to read this verse and then we're going to um, continue in our study. Again, we're dealing with the study, You Can Believe Two, you can believe too, and we're going to talk today about the writings that prove Christ's existence. And again, as we enter the Christmas season, although many are trying to remove Christ from Christmas, you and I know He belongs there. Not only does He belong there, but without Him, there is no such thing as Christmas. And um, obviously, you know, everything's about holidays today and, you know, special time, but this is Christmas. This is about Christ. And as believers, we're very excited that we have this opportunity uh, to share Christ in this season because sometimes it seems often that people are a little bit more open to the gospel this time of year. I can say this, that there are more people that hurt than you'd ever imagine this time of year. It's a very difficult time of year for a number of people. The older I get, the more I'm aware of that. When you're younger, you have there's nothing negative about Christmas, but as you've gone through life, you lose loved ones to death. Um, you uh, move across country, you're unable to be with family. There are things sometimes that aren't as pleasant about Christmas as they used to be. But we have to remember as believers what it's really about. It's about Christ and His coming. And we need to take from that and we need to remember that even those loved ones that are no longer with us here on this earth are alive and well with Him as believers in Christ Jesus. And we will be reunited one day. Now, <clears throat> was there a really a person by the name of Jesus Christ who walked the face of the earth? It's a good question. And yes, there was and is a person by the name of Jesus Christ. And he was he the son of God? And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, unfortunately, the world is trying to tell us different. The world's trying to convince us that he does not exist or that he did not exist as outlined in the word of God. And again, we need to be very careful and aware that they're going to try to deceive us and ultimately spoil us. The Bible says, Beware, verse 8, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Once again, everything is either a worldview or a biblical worldview. It's, it's the world's worldview or our biblical worldview. Well, how do you see this world? How do you view things around you? And uh, we know there's a Christ, a Jesus that lived, died, was buried, and rose again. But if we're not careful, even as believers, we can begin to wonder, and those questions can pop up in our minds. And so, last week we began this study, and we noted that the Word of God proves Christ's existence. Today we want to note the writers prove Christ's existence. And so, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to kind of get right into some things today, okay? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. 
Lord, we thank you once again for the privilege that it is to be called the sons of God, to truly be in your family. <clears throat> now, Lord, we are unworthy, and yet because you are so worthy, our sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come to you as a father, to enter into your very presence, asking and seeking your help. We're glad, Father, that we can come boldly to your throne of grace. And Lord, today we do just that, asking you to meet our need today. May you encourage us, inspire us, and motivate us even in this passage as we look at some of these writers of old, some of these non-Christian writers, and just some of the things that they have said that lend itself to proof that indeed you literally existed on earth, that you not only are a reality biblically, but historically. Thank you, Lord. We'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now, again, I was very blessed to come across an article written by a man by the name of Michael uh, Gleghorn. Uh, interesting name, Gleghorn. But anyway, the article was invaluable to me as I began to put this message together. I had started working on the message, came across the article, and it was very valuable to me because he summarized much of what I had been studying along the way and helped me to kind of, kind of put it all together. So I want to give credit where it's due. Um, you know, they say, why reinvent the wheel? You know, if it's working, why not keep going with it? So we're going to do that a little bit. But in Psalm chapter 119, verse 160, the Bible says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Although there's overwhelming evidence in the New Testament to its accuracy, its legitimacy, its trustworthiness historically, the fact is, is that it is reassuring at times to find other sources that corroborate the gospel claims and the gospel message. I mean, we, we enjoy that. It's good. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we believe the Bible, but it's nice sometimes to see something along the way that helps to say, see, right there it is, black and white. And maybe and gives us a little bit of ammunition along the way as we deal with others who are in unbelief. So this message is going to attempt to do just that, to kind of maybe arm us with a little bit of ammunition again. I want to begin by talking about a man by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus. Tacitus was a senator and a historian of the Roman Empire. The surviving portions of his two major works, which were entitled The Annals and the Histories, they examined the reigns of the Roman empires of Tiberius, uh, emperors of Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, and those who reigned in the years of the four emperors uh, up to A.D. 69. Now, the two works that he has span the history of the Roman Empire to the death of Augustus in A.D. 14 to the year uh, of the first Jewish-Roman War in A.D. 70. So what we're going to be reading from is a portion that, he is, that, that covers A.D. 14 through the period of A.D. 70. He's writing about that portion of history. And he begins to talk about 64 A.D. when the city of Rome was destroyed by fire. It is a, uh, it's, it's a historical fact that the city of Rome was destroyed by fire in 64 A.D. The emperor at that time, Nero, he decided to blame the Christians for this particular atrocity. Now again, people did not like Christians, so therefore he felt it was an opportunity to get people really angry, upset with the Christians, and ultimately be able to really go after them full force. So reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame the Christians for the fire that had destroyed, literally destroyed Rome in AD 64, the Roman historian Tacitus writes these words. He says, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pilatus, excuse me, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And amazing. I mean, here is a secular historian, not a Christian, mind you, writing a historical passage concerning the times A.D. 14 to 70 A.D. And what can we learn then from that passage? It's pretty clear he refers to Jesus Christ quite plainly however, unsympathetically, um, what can we learn? First of all, Tacitus reports Christians derived their name from a historical person. Who was that person? He calls him Christus. From the Latin, that's the Latin, Christus, meaning Christ. 
So this people derived their name, these Christians, from a man by the name of Christ. That's the same Jesus Christ that we believe you must put your faith and trust in in order to be saved. He said to have, quote, according to Tacitus, suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty. Well, obviously, it seems to me, and I'm probably clear to you, that he's referring to the Roman method of execution, which was what? Crucifixion. A very extreme method or penalty. Now, this is said to have occurred, according to him, in the reign of Tiberius and by the sentence of Pontius Pilate. Well, those are two very familiar names to us because over in the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judah, Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and he goes on to explain some things. These are names that we find in our Bible. These are names that we find in history, and they align themselves perfectly. I want you to note his statement here as well. He says, he, he referring to this most mischievous superstition. He says, Pontius Pilate, he goes, and a most super, excuse me, most mischievous superstition has checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. That's interesting to me, that this particular mischievous superstition broke out in Judea, but also reached Rome. Well, what in the world could that thing be? What could that superstition be? I mean, could it be that it was the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, considered to be a superstition to those that lived in his day and age? Over in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, turn there if you would, please, verse 11. Notice what the Bible says here about the days following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Matthew, chapter 28... Beginning in verse 11, we read, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and shoot unto the chief priest all the things that were done. Remember when Jesus Christ died, he was buried. And when he was buried, there was a, a group of soldiers that was placed at the tomb to guard it. Why? To ensure that the body was not stolen, to ensure that no mischief took place. Now, notice what these men do as they come back the watch comes back into the city and they talk to the chief priest and share with the things with him that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Why? Because the soldiers told him what just happened, that the stone was rolled away and he lives. And so they paid them large sums of money saying, verse 13, say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we'll persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Now again, biblically, we know that the soldiers came and they went ahead and were told, you keep your mouth shut. If someone asked you what really happened, you tell them what really happened, even though it's a lie, that this, his, his disciples came and stole him away. And so as a result, why is it not plausible, practical, and really re uh, 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 acceptable to believe that that superstition, which Tacitus, the historian, speaks of here, is none other than the fact that Christ arose? Pretty simple. I personally have no doubt that that's what he's referring to. But nonetheless, Christianity was a rapidly growing religion. And of course, we know that it was based on the worship of a man, that man was none other than Jesus Christ himself who had been crucified as a criminal. So why should it surprise us that Tacitus and others would refer to his resurrection as simply what's he called it? I'm looking for it. I just said it. Superstition. Yeah, a mischievous superstition. Why wouldn't he do that? That's amazing. Well, I think it's obvious, quite clear. Evidence from Tacitus. Evidence from Pliny the Younger. Another writer, Pliny the Younger, lived A.D. 61 to 112 A.D. Pliny the Younger was a lawyer. He was an author. He was a magistrate of ancient Rome. He wrote hundreds of letters, many of which still survive to this day. So they're reviewed, they're looked at even now, regarded in high esteem. They're a very historical source of that time period. Some have addressed, uh, some addressed reigning emperors. Some of those letters addressed, addressed nobles of that day and age. And uh, uh, it, it even, even some of those writings uh, talked to uh, or corresponded with Tacitus himself. 
Pliny served as an imperial magistrate under Trojan, who reigned between 98 and 117 A.D. Again, he was considered a very honest and a very moderate man. But he was considered honest and moderate in his pursuit of suspected Christian members, according to the Roman law. What's that mean? That means that he sought after Christians, seeking to persecute, ultimately ban them and destroy them. So Pliny, he seeks, or should I say, says that he needed to consult the emperor about this issue because a great multitude, he claimed, of every age, class, and sex stood to be accused of Christianity. There were so many Christians, and Pliny had to consult the emperor and say, man, we're having an outbreak. We've got a real manifestation of these Christians. What are we going to do about it? So, at one point in his letter, Pliny relates some of the information he's learned about these Christians, and he states, here's what he learned about these Christians as he writes to this emperor of Rome. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Isn't that interesting? Speaking of Christians, very clearly identifying basically what we do today in a sense. I mean, it's very clear. Again, it provides us with a number of interesting, interesting insights into the beliefs and practices of these early Christians. First, notice in Acts chapter 20, uh, well, first of all, turn to Acts 20, verse 7. We're going to see that Christians regularly met on a fixed day for worship. That's what we see here from this particular man by the name of Pliny the Younger. Makes it very clear that they are meeting on a regular basis, a fixed day for worship. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, we read, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Again, the first day of the week. The first day of the week is the day that Christ himself rose. The first day of the week will ultimately become the day that Christians meet. And therefore, we meet on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, not Saturday, the day of the Sabbath. And so we find not only in Acts 27, them meeting on a specific day, a fixed day, as was referred to in uh, Pliny's writings, but also in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Again, they're meeting on the first day of the week, a very fixed day. So we find out from Pliny that the Christians met regularly for a certain, on a certain fixed day for worship. Okay, makes sense. Number two, that their worship was directed to Christ, demonstrating that they firmly believed in his deity. Again, in his particular letter, he, he makes that statement. He goes on to say that, that they had a meet, fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. As to a God. Now again, their gods were in heaven and they would pray to their gods. These prayed to a man that literally existed. Therefore, he was referred to or, or was considered to be God then. You don't pray to anybody but gods. And in his case, he called him and as to a God, which is a little g-god because to him, gods are all the same and equal. But of course, to these believers, Jesus Christ, whom they prayed to, whom they worshiped, was God himself. Then Pliny states that hymns were sung to Christ as to a God again. And again, that seemed to indicate that their worship was pointed toward and their praise was pointed toward that historical person. That's amazing to me. Now again, I, uh, Pliny is not a Christian. Pliny's just basically stating what he knows to be historical fact and truth. He's documented as one of the, uh, a very um, um, a good historian, a reliable historian. And yet here he speaks of these Christians and their practices early on and to the Christ who they focused their attention to. Not only does he help us understand what early Christians believed about Jesus as a person, but he also revealed their high esteem to what he taught. You know, in that particular little passage, he notes that the Christians bound themselves by some solemn oaths. 
What did they bind themselves? To the very word of God, to his principles, his practices. And so therefore, they did not act a certain way. They held to some moral standards. And the source of that moral standard was the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Then we come to Josephus. Josephus, again, is probably the most popular of all of these particular uh, historians. Again, he's not a Christian, but he wrote between the years... He, he was born in 37 A.D., lived to 100 A.D., so he did indeed have an opportunity to experience and literally see some of the things that took place and transpired. It's more than likely that at his birth, Jesus Christ was, uh, uh, had already died at that point or very close thereabouts, right around that time. But nonetheless, he lived to be 100, uh, lived to A.D. 100 before he died, and he was able to, able to um, uh, write out so many things historically and share things from his personal experience as well as from what he observed in his culture and society. Again, probably the most remarkable reference to Jesus outside of the Bible is found in the writings of Josephus. We're not going to look at that one yet. We're going to look at another one that he wrote. And uh, so uh, it's not quite as conclusive, but it is good. In his one uh, portion or one place where he writes, he's referring to uh, or describing the hatred of a particular man. Uh, people hated this man. His name was James. He was hated by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so he's writing about this hated man by the name of James uh, who was hated by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this James, says Josephus, was the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Now again, he's writing a historical fact, a historical uh, paper, we'll say, or writings, and he's saying that this James was the brother of Jesus, a historical person, character, the so-called Christ. Well, that lines up perfectly with, the, perfectly with the Word of God again. Over in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 19, the apostle Paul, speaking to the Galatians, states, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So therefore, the writings of Josephus in this particular instance line up with what the Bible says about this particular man by the name of James. He was the brother of Jesus Christ. Well, there you have proof once again that the Bible is not only accurate, but that, it lines its, that, that history lines itself up with the Bible. Again, there have been some who have questioned certain portions of Josephus' writings. And sometimes they've questioned whether or not they're actually his writings, that maybe somebody came along and inserted pieces and parts into his historical accounts. That one about James is not one of those accounts at all. There's no very, very few, if anybody, debates whether or not that was accurate and reliable. However, I'm going to share another one with you that is questioned, and we'll talk about why it's questioned in just a moment. <clears throat> this particular passage is called the Testimonium Flavianum. <laughs> Good luck. It's, 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 it's Latin, so therefore I'm excused. But... The relevant portion makes a declaration. Let me read what that relevant portion says. And again, it's taking it from a big portion, and we're going to condense it down slightly. But it says, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned, with, uh, condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. That's pretty good. Hold on. You say, but you said there's some that will question the authority of that particular passage. Yes. Most believe, scholars that is, believe that the core of the passage is intact, that it's originated with Josephus. But they do also believe that there's a possibility that it was later altered by a Christian editor, somebody that was a Christian and possibly that alteration took place between the 3rd and 4th century A.D. Why would they think that that particular passage was altered? I'm not saying it was or it wasn't. But why would they think that? Well, first of all, Josephus, as we mentioned with the other writers, was not a Christian at all. He wasn't a Christian. And as, a, as difficult 
uh, it would be difficult to believe that anybody but a Christian would have made some of the statements that he made. That's their thinking. You'd have to be Christian to make certain statements, they think. Now, for instance, the claim that Jesus was a wise man, that seems authentic. I can see somebody that was non-Christian saying he was a wise man from that perspective. But then he qualifies his phrase and he states, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Well, that is suspect in the eyes of so-called um, of, of these um, um, biblical... Um, boy, my mind's going blank here. I'm trying to keep too much in my head. Um, scholars, thank you. Appreciate that help. It's good to have the Holy Spirit on the front row. <clears throat> that's always a blessing. And I'm telling you, scholars, that's the word I was looking for. Amen? Now, again, um, he also goes on here. Some have found it... Uh, we, we see that some have found it difficult to believe that he would have asserted that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, and then... Obviously, we saw earlier that he said so-called Christ. So there's a discrepancy there a little bit. Okay, understandable. Finally, the claim that on the third day, Jesus appeared to his disciples, restored to life, implies that Jesus was more than human, obviously. Anybody that can raise from the dead would have to be more than a human. So that statement's kind of hard to swallow from a non-Christian like Josephus in the minds of these scholars. Now, even if we disregard some of those questionable parts of the passage, we're still left with a very good uh, perspective or or, uh, corroborating evidence concerning the biblical Jesus. First of all, we read that he was a wise man who performed surprising feats. Well, that's pretty obvious. I mean, we know a wise man, that would be, you know, somebody would recognize that even if you're saved or lost, uh, performed surprising feats. If he did something miraculous, we would certainly be annotated, recognized by even a secular historian. And in the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25, the Bible tells us, and there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. I mean, Jesus Christ did a number of marvelous feats. That just aligns itself up, and a historian would certainly write that. And although he was crucified under Pilate, his followers, Josephus says, continued their discipleship and became known as Christians. So we can throw out some of those statements and still come away with some real important information. Yes, he was crucified under Pilate. Once again, literal persons, Pilate, Christ, crucified, all three things historically proven. Then his followers continued their discipleship and became known as Christians. In the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 26, the Bible says, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. They were ultimately called Christians. So it makes perfect sense that this particular Josephus would recognize that they had been called that and they continued in that particular realm. Then we come to the Babylonian Talmud. Again, just a few ideas here. And we see here in this particular passage in the Babylonian Talmud, it was a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings. The most significant reference to Jesus is uh, at least from the period of 70 to 200 AD, which is considered the most reliable portion of that Talmud. It says, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Again, it's in the Talmud, a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings. The, 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 the uh, rabbis did not like Jesus Christ either, so understand the source. But on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Again, the portion refers to someone named Yeshu. That's not a problem because that is really Jesus uh, in Hebrew. Je- uh, that Yeshu or uh, Yeshua is how Jesus' name is pronounced in the Hebrew. But the passage says something interesting. It says that Jesus was what? Hanged. Someone says, well, he was crucified, so he's not referring to the Jesus of the Bible. Well, turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to see that that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, Jesus Christ is referred to as being hanged. It's interesting. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. There we find the Bible says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. When Jesus Christ hung on Calvary, he literally became the curse. 
the cursed one, literally within him, in his body, he bore our sin on the cross. Instead of us being cursed now, he is the curse, at least in body, there on Calvary in our place. Now, he goes on to say, It is written, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus hangeth on a tree. It would be easy to say that he was hung. He hanged on a tree. That's not a far stretch. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, referring to those uh, thieves on the cross, it says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him. He was hanged, and he railed on Jesus Christ there, hanging beside the Lord Jesus as he was hung. We know he was crucified, but the Bible refers to him as being hanged. So it's not a far stretch here. So the Babylonian Talmud states a couple of things that are very important to us. Of course, we seem to have a, 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 a situation that involves Jesus Christ being crucified on the eve of the Passover, which is biblical. That is a biblical truth. Not only that, but it's interesting to me that this, that this Talmud claims that he practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. How, how fitting is that from the Jewish perspective? Again, considering the source... It shouldn't surprise us that his actions would be described as such. In the New Testament, we read in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. I mean, sorcery. Why wouldn't it be considered sorcery? There it is. I mean, they they made the claim already. They said back in the day, according to the word of God, that he's casting out demons by the power of demons or the devil. Amazing. So how's, it's not hard to associate once again his sorcery with just the fact that he was able to cast out demons. Not only that, but we find that that charge that he gives here, that, that we learn here in the, that Jewish rabbinical writing, it confirms once again the amazing miraculous feats of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, he practiced sorcery. Well, it looks like magic. Well, of course a healing looks like magic to an unbeliever. And then finally, in John 12, 37, referring to this aspect of apostasy, we note that the charge was placed on him long before the writing of this Talmud. But through, though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Apostasy. He was considered a false prophet. Jesus Christ was. See, the writings of these particular historians and many, many others that we did not share, these are just some secular, non-Christian writers that refer to Jesus Christ living literally in that day. A historical Jesus, not just a biblical Jesus. So let's summarize what we've learned. What we've learned about Jesus is this that both Josephus and Lucian, and I didn't share Lucian with you, indicate that Jesus was regarded as wise. Pliny the Talmud and Lucian imply that he was powerful and a revered teacher. Josephus and the Talmud indicate that he performed miraculous feats. Tacitus, Josephus, and the Talmud, as well as Lucian, all mention that he was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say that this occurrence was under Pontius Pilate, and the Talmud declares that it happened on the eve of the Passover. Amazing, once again, as you begin to pull it all together, you realize that the details that we find in the Word of God concerning Christ are not just some writings of a madman, but they are historically historically based. They are factually based. Finally, we find that Pliny and Lucius indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God, that He was the Christ, that they believed He was the Messiah, that they were called Christians, and that they went forth, even as we do, carefully living their lives, separated in a sinful, wicked world. John chapter 5, verse 39, however, says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. As much as we can look at the writings of men and women and others through the ages that point to Jesus Christ, confirm His existence, we must never forget the most important piece of evidence that we hold or have. And that is none other than the Word of God itself. We can never substitute what others say for what God says. And yet, we find that in history, there are those that confirm 
the literal existence of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Would you please turn there as we close? Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 is probably one of the most popular passages concerning this time of year, Christmas. It says, And it came to pass, verse 1, in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. May I say today that that Jesus that we read about is a historical figure he literally lived in that day. But not only that, he is a biblical figure of which no greater history has ever been recorded than in this book. More accurate than any writer. This book stands alone. This book stands alone. And Jesus Christ lived. Jesus Christ died. And Jesus Christ rose again according to the scriptures. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, that baby that was born, named Jesus Christ, who was Emmanuel, God with us, ultimately bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. I want to encourage you today, if you've yet put your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to think with me for a moment what it would mean to neglect or reject the Jesus of the Bible as described by secular historians even, as affirmed by secular historians. To reject this Jesus who is God in flesh is to literally reject the Creator who put you on earth who puts breath in your life, who puts skip or bounce in your step, the one who has given you anything that is good at all in this world, is to reject Him. But His goodness will not last forever. His goodness will come to a screeching halt after the opportunity of grace has subsided and passed. His wrath will be all that is left. And I want to encourage you today to trust in Jesus Christ, to invite this Jesus who once was born, placed in a manger, who grew to be a man and ultimately lived and died on a cross called Calvary. And the very one who rose again to prove to you that you too can live forever Amen. is worthy of your trust and faith. I want to encourage you to put your faith in Him today. Do not leave here. Do not leave here doubting but leave here with confidence that you know Him, that He knows you, Jesus Christ, a historical as well as biblical figure. Literally, God in flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we come to You. We ask You to speak to our hearts as you already have, confirm in our hearts the truth, the proof. Lord, we know that the Word of God is enough, but Lord, it's so encouraging at times to have corroborating evidence to just nail it down, to really help us to feel even stronger, more secure than ever in it. Lord, I pray that, Father, we would not doubt your existence, but we would be confident in it. And Lord, if there be any that are in this place without you, may they not leave here without putting their faith in you and you alone. You died for them. And you, Father, rose again for them. And you call them and say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Lord, the world would have us...
scratch out a living, try to somehow just get through it. Lord, you want us to have life and life more abundant. Help us, Lord, we pray to come to you today if we haven't already. And for the believer today, may our hearts be encouraged. And may we thank and praise you, Father, for your reality and goodness. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? As the music plays, you come. Don't you waste a moment. Simply come. Step to the front. See me right up front. Let's have a Bible. This book, the blessed word of God. Tacitus, Josephus, Pliny, Lucian, the Babylonian Talmud. All of those are just testifying of the reality and truth of this book, the word of God. That's all. They aren't the proof. They just support the truth. The Word of God. Won't you come and invite Christ into your life today? The Jesus who came 2,000 years ago that we celebrate at Christmas. He grew to be a man and died for you to pay for your sin. Suffer your agony. To give to you eternal life. And to me, eternal life. But you must make the decision to trust Him today doesn't do a good. It's not enough to simply know about Him. You have to allow Him to pay for your sin. And you do that by, the, by calling upon Him, as the Bible tells us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Literally, Lord, I'm the sinner that you died for. I deserve to go to that hell. But Lord, You so graciously died in my place, paid for my sin. I need You to forgive me, to save me, to come into my life. I can't do it. Only you can. And I'm trusting you to do that right now. Simple. Simple, but so profound, so life-changing, so eternal in resolve. 